Today's show is supported by Provider Solutions and Development. Their entire business is finding clinicians better jobs by asking how their work fits into who they are. Reach out to the holistic career coaching experts at psdrecruit.org forward slash curbsiders. The Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like more hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we aren't responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Stuart, we are back. And uh, that's right. This was a really great one. This is a I've, I believe yeah. we've had Ted, Dr. Ted Parks on the show at least this might be the third time now. And we're talking about the elbow this time. We've done mm. hip and knee with him. He is fantastic. That's right. It really hit my funny bone this time. I hope you have more puns because that's not really where the pun's supposed to go. I'm going to press on. I wanted to remind the audience that uh, we partner with VCU Health Continuing Education. They offer CME credits for almost all the shows that we make. So you can go to uh, this one will be a CME episode. So you can go to curbsiders.vcuhealth.org to claim CE credit. You just have to create an account if you don't have one, but it's free. And uh, we offer credit for... Uh, nurses, physician assistants, pharmacists, doctors, you name it. So it's a really great... And librarians, too. And librarians. We give big shout-out to uh, librarians on this episode. Stuart, since Paul's not here, did you want to... And before you tell them about our wonderful co-host, did you want to tell them, uh, what do we do on this show? You know, just like Paul, I wonder why I'm here, too. (laughs) But, you know... We are the Internal Medicine Podcast, where we use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and uh, practice-changing knowledge, as uh, in this episode, as, as in every episode. Well, and today, the episode is brought uh, to you by our wonderful Dr. Molly Hoyblind, who is a producer for this episode. And without further ado, I'd like to toss the ball her way. Thank you for that lovely introduction, Stuart. Uh, So our guest tonight is Dr. Ted Parks. He's an orthopedic surgeon in private practice in Denver with a faculty position at the University of Colorado. For the past 25 years, he's been teaching orthopedics to internal medicine residents interested in practicing primary care. Through that time, he's learned that these residents have little or no training in orthopedics, but in a matter of months, they will embark on careers where orthopedic conditions will be among the most common complaints they encounter. He loves teaching what he sees as the most simple material, i.e. orthopedics, to some of the brightest minds in medicine. And he does a great job doing that today. He has published a text on orthopedics for primary care called Practical Office Orthopedics. So today we cover three common elbow complaints, medial and lateral epicondylitis, electron bursitis, and radial head fractures. Um, Dr. Parks talks us through kind of the history behind each of those, what actually the pathophysiology going on is, and talks us through an exam that you can do over Zoom. And I'll leave this as a hanger. He diagnoses one of our co-hosts here with lateral epicondylitis. You can figure out who that is. <laughs> we were all surprised by that one. <laughs> I wasn't. <laughs> I'm going to stop recording. Oh, I, okay. You have fine. a pun? You have a pun? Of course he does. <laughs> oh, not really. I was going to say something about this this episode being humorous and something about Electron. Whatever. Just, Just shut it off all right i i won't electron on humor well, because the no because the humerus <laughs> the bone <laughs> i think electron humoritis is better yeah, there you go
Well, uh, we've clapped. We're ready to start. Things are synced up here. Ted, welcome back. Please remind the audience who you are and maybe tell them a hobby or two. I know you have many hobbies. Yeah, thanks for having me back. It's a pleasure to be back. So I'm Ted Parks. I'm an orthopedic surgeon in Denver. And uh, yeah, I like to do a lot of things. I love doing orthopedic surgery. I also uh, love to play the guitar. I like uh, I like cars. I've, uh, I like designing cars and building cars. And uh, uh, for a while, I was into making uh, electronic devices like game controllers for exercise devices, similar to Peloton, but, but <laughs> decades before. <laughs> you really, I know. We could just imagine an alternate universe, Ted, where you are right. a, on a multi-billion dollar company that is now Peloton. Yes. <laughs> and Tesla too, right? Didn't you have a Tesla angle? Called, yes. called the, the Tetaton. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I've, uh, I visit that universe a lot in my, in my uh, wishes and dreams, but it, it ain't there. Yeah. Well, Ted, we, we were talking a little bit in pre-recording about uh, the pandemic and how certainly that's made a lot of changes for you as an orthopedic surgeon. What have you been doing to pass some of the time? How have you been maybe some leisure time that you didn't have or, or just to blow off the stress that of, of being in a pandemic? What are, what are you up to these days? Yeah, one thing I'm doing is getting home and reacquainting myself with the people who live in my house, uh, my kids and my wife. And uh, <laughs> it's great to see that they're still there and, and remember who I am and everything. Uh, but uh, no, family dinners have been great and uh, card games and all the stuff that we all did during the pandemic was actually kind of fun, uh, like going back to the 50s or something. Uh, also, I uh, at one point in my life, I did a lot of portrait uh, painting and I put all that stuff away because it's it's such a loner hobby. It takes a lot of time. It's messy. And I don't like being around people when I do it. So I hadn't done that for, for decades. And I got to do a little of that with the free time too. So, uh, so I've been able to, to stay out of mischief, but still do some things to keep myself occupied. If you're, you're like very well rounded, I'm amazed. <laughs> well, you haven't uh, you haven't seen these pictures yet, so they're pretty. Uh, you'd have to see the work before you get well, too excited we, about it. We can put one on Instagram if you want to share. Okay, That's I'll right. send you. Uh, my wife's birthday is next week, and I did this. Well, actually, I shouldn't send that; she'd kill me. But I, did, I just uh, I just finished a portrait there. I'll I'll send you something that uh, yeah. that'll be appropriate. The, don't worry, we'll follow it up with a picture of the cars that you've made. Okay, there you go. That'd be better. <laughs> Molly, did Molly? It's been a while since you've been on the show. Did you want to give a pick on the week before we we move on with the with the actual topic for tonight? Sure. Uh, I recently read a book called The Warmth of Other Suns by Isabel Wilkerson, and it's a really well done history that's kind of a um, combining oral histories with her personal research into the Great Migration in America. So, kind of from World War One through the 1960s, the African American migration from the South to the North and to the West. Um, and it's just a really beautifully written book. I was an, a history major in my undergrad, and so it was fun for me to kind of get back to something very non-medicine. Um, and she follows uh, these four people mainly and really does a beautiful job telling their story. And just in these COVID times where we're really losing a lot of elderly people, I think she did a beautiful job just sharing that wisdom of the elderly and sharing the wisdom of people that have been through so much and, and we're losing a lot of that. So I would definitely recommend the work warmth of other suns. Is that historical fiction or is it nonfiction? It's nonfiction, but she um, did really extensive kind of verbal interviews with pe with people. So she really tells her story in a way that, you know, almost sounds 
you know, she gives right. intense like, details. So it almost sounds it's like, like a bi- mini biographies of the right. people featured in the book. That sounds great. Exactly. Stuart, what about you? Is there a, a TV show over the warmth of other sons as well? I think uh, I was looking it up. <laughs> he was going to tell us how know. many copies, <laughs> how many copies are left on Amazon. Yeah. But instead I found that. No, no, no. Yeah. So my, my pick of the week, I don't think we've ever chosen this pick of the week, the TV show fringe by JJ Abrams. Have we, I don't, I don't think we have. I don't know. I don't think so. No, it's a, it's an amazing show. It, I mean, if I were to give you a premise, it just sounds r- really r- ridiculous about FBI agents. And oh yeah. It's crazy. Fringes. Alternate universe. Oh my gosh. Yeah. But it, it, it doesn't just, throw it in your face it just builds up over time and frankly i just think it's quite possibly my favorite tv show of all time maybe behind uh the expanse but uh is that because the mad scientist at the center of it all (laughs) (laughs) could essentially be your father uh (laughs) yeah you know what i i I identify with him pretty closely I, I very much enjoyed that show. Maybe that's why I like it. It was because of that show that I went to a sensory deprivation chamber myself. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, and Ted, before uh, before we, we get on with it, I know now I know there's this great book, Practical Office Orthopedics, which of course we've all read. Uh, I, of course, I used that heavily to prepare for this episode tonight. But uh, did you have any uh, any TV shows, movies, books, podcasts, anything like that that you wanted to recommend to the audience, or you just recommend everyone buy a paintbrush and an art easel and uh, just go to? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I was telling you earlier. I think that in orthopedics, you stand the risk of losing your license if you're caught reading too much. <laughs> and uh, but actually, you know, there's uh, Dennis Burkett who uh, discovered Burkett's lymphoma had a great quote, and he said, "It's better to read a little and ponder a lot uh, than it is to uh, read a lot and ponder a little." which I thought was a great quote. And it gives me a good way out of, uh, of explaining why I don't read that much. <laughs> I suppose the, if you really were good, you'd read a lot and ponder a lot. He didn't really touch on that. Uh, but uh, do you, but do that's you have one of those windows? Have you ever seen, this is a, it's been in like multiple different comedy shows where there's, it's like someone's looking out a window and there's rain on it. And then the camera pans away and it's just like, a, it's it's not really raining, but it's just a window to make it look like it's raining. I can imagine you having one of those in your house and you're just staring out the window, yes. uh, looking wistful, uh, <laughs> thinking about things. <laughs> yeah, we have that. All our windows are set up like that. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. I, right. I, I used to think it was the bathroom upstairs leaking water again, but it was it's actually on purpose. For physicians, this hasn't been an easy time in an already challenging profession. If you're looking for a new position or just starting to imagine what's out there, our sponsor, Provider Solutions and Development, helps people like you find their next job. For 20 years, they've taken the holistic approach to career coaching that starts with listening to what you're looking for in the clinic and outside of it, and then finding the role that fulfills you. With exclusive access to hundreds of open positions across the country, they're ready to guide you toward the job you really want, from residency all the way to retirement. Get in touch after this show and start a conversation at psdrecruit.org forward slash curbsiders. Well, uh, I think this is a great place to to get into the actual uh, meat of the show tonight. And Molly, did you want to start us off with a case uh, from Cashlack Memorial? Sure, yeah. Our first patient is Carla. She's a 46-year-old healthy woman who is coming to Cashlack um, to the outpatient clinic for a video visit, complaining of two to three months of slowly worsening elbow pain. She denies trauma, but says that one side of her elbow hurts, 
and the pain runs down her forearm. It used to just be with activity like household chores, but now she has pain at rest sometimes. And she specifically mentions that she never plays tennis or golf. So I was hoping we could take a step back and review the elbow anatomy briefly. Yeah, you bet. And luckily, that elbow anatomy is pretty straightforward. It would be nice uh, to have a skeleton. And I videoed some anatomy, elbow anatomy with a skeleton. And I'll uh, try to get that to you if you want to use it on the uh, YouTube. Um, but uh, for the purposes of a purely audio presentation, you know, the, the thing about the elbow that everybody finds right away when they examine it is the olecranon process. It's this big bony bump that sticks out on the back. And uh, that's probably the most easy to find feature. The things we're going to talk about today are two other lesser bony bumps, which are the medial and lateral epicondyles, not of the ulna. The olecranon process is actually part of the ulna, but the medial and lateral epicondyle are parts of the humerus, humerus, the distal humerus. So they're a little more proximal. The lateral one, as you'd imagine, is directly lateral, and the medial one's directly medial. And you can feel them on yourselves on the outer side of your elbow, these little bony protuberances. They're palpable even on most heavy patients. And uh, that's the point that we're most interested in as far as palpable landmarks uh, for, for epicondylitis. Um, the uh, other thing to keep in mind is that the elbow is an interesting joint in that it has sort of dual mobility. It has the flexion extension motion, the motion of straightening your elbow out and bending it like you would to touch your shoulder. But it also has this other motion, which if you plaster your elbow against your side and you turn your palm from palm up to palm down, your wrist, hand, and forearm are rotating at the elbow. And uh, that rotational motion, it, it makes it a little bit more uh, complex and a more interesting joint as far as its function goes. And really, other than those bony landmarks, the olecranon process and the medial and lateral epicondyle, and the concept of combined motion, flexion, extension, and supination, pronation, that should cover the anatomy. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about bursas and, and you know, what they are, but uh, that isn't something you can necessarily see or palpate unless there's uh, electron bursitis or pathology there. And, and how, how many patients with golfers or tennis elbow actually play golf or tennis? <laughs> Precious few, very few. <laughs> and some of the golfers have tennis elbow and some of the tennis players have golfer's elbow. So it's really a mess. I don't know how those nicknames got started. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask you that next. Yeah, yeah, you anticipated that one. It was actually a doctor golfer, I think. That. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I didn't realize they were eponymous. That that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah. Do we so do we understand the the if it's not golf or tennis do we understand the pathophysiology of of how someone might get this and so Carla in our first case um it, it like she has no real specific history that would point us to that is right. that common and, and it's it's very common and what's really interesting about this condition is how little we know about it and how much we say we know probably isn't true. Uh, I grew up in an era when we considered this an inflammatory condition of the tendon. Uh, and the tendon we're talking about for lateral epicondylitis is this common extensor origin tendon. So it's basically the common root tendon for a whole bunch of muscles. They all share one tendinous attachment to the lateral epicondyle. And that tendon attaches to muscles that dorsiflex the wrist and dorsiflex the finger. Uh, the fingers. So we've got five fingers and a, an, a radial and ulnar wrist extensor. So all these muscles come together, share a tendon that attaches at the epicondyle. And the tenderness is right where that tendon attaches. So for a long time, we thought, okay, this is a tendonitis. But uh, it turns out if you look at the tissue histologically, it doesn't have the inflammatory changes that are typical 
of tendonitis. So uh, it got it became really uncool to call it tendonitis because <laughs> histologically, it's not that. It's more like epicondyl uh, or tendinosis or uh, uh, epicondyl myalgia. There are all kinds of these weird uh, names for it. But lateral epicondylitis has stuck, and it's the historical one that most of us use. Technically, uh, I guess you can't, you shouldn't use it because it's not an itis, not an inflammatory condition, strictly speaking. So we don't know much about that. We don't know much about why you get it. The uh, theory that makes the most sense and corresponds with the fact that we never really see it in somebody under 20 years old uh, is that it comes as a consequence of us losing the elasticity in that piece of connective tissue, that uh, attachment, that tendon attachment to the lateral epicondyle. And when you're young and flexible and you exert those muscles, they pull on that tendon and the tendon has enough elasticity to give a little bit. But as we get older, and this has been shown histologically, we lose elastin in our connective tissues. So that tissue is less elastic, and that seems to correlate with our developing this condition. So uh, the, the one thing that she has in her history is just her age of being over 20 uh, is about the only thing you can hang your hat on. There is no golfing or tennis that's going to help us there as far as figuring out how or why she got it. She just is guilty of being over 20 years old. Is, is there anything you'd, else you'd want to know? Like if a patient just comes in and they say, I have elbow pain and there, there was no trauma, is there anything else that you think is worthwhile asking them in the history? Yeah, the, I think right off the bat, the things you want to exclude are trauma, or not necessarily exclude, but if you want to search for trauma or infection, and uh, if you think the diagnosis involves those things, it's a very different pathway. So uh, you want to exclude or rule out trauma or infection. We, we heard in her history that she didn't have any trauma. And the infections I'm talking about wouldn't be like subtle things. They would be like, wow, that really looks hideous, red and swollen. And if it's, if it's so subtle that you're squinting, trying to figure out if it's infected or not, uh, I'm not going to count that. That's not, that's not an infection. <laughs> Probably for, for not the person that walks in the primary care office and they're like, oh yeah, my elbow has been hurting. What's going on? With yes, that? It's not... exactly. Okay. Yeah. So you get a feeling pretty quick about the patient we're talking about. And it's, it's not trauma. Uh, it may be a little acute on on chronic trauma, like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, geez, when I took the trash out last night and I was lifting the thing up to dump it, it really hurt then and it's hurt worse since then. But it's, it's an, it, that would be sort of an acute on chronic. This is more of a chronic uh, problem. Okay. I feel like patients who develop this, like, try to find certain activities to blame it on is... Yeah. And then maybe back away from those. Is, is that... Are they related at all? Yeah. And Whenever I do dishes, I can't... <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. But and it is true that it, 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 I've had patients, uh, I had a librarian who uh, during uh, the COVID was tasked with reshelving like a zillion books. And that motion of putting books up on the shelf did precipitate it for her. So librarian's elbow might uh, take over tennis elbow someday. I but, like uh, that. So you do, you do find those things uh, as far as specific activities uh, that might precipitate the symptoms. Librarians don't get enough credit for the physical work uh, that they do. That's right. I think it's yes. I think they need real. an injury named after them. They're, <laughs> it's it's, right. it's well time for that. <laughs> Other than falling off one of those little little ladders, yeah, right. Uh, yeah, those those wheelie ladders. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, I have always wanted one of those. Uh, before we get in trouble, we have we have a large segment of the audience that's librarians. I apologize to them. Uh, we love you. I actually yes. shout out to all the medical librarians out there who uh, are some of my favorite people. Um, I I wanted to ask about the physical exam for this because um, 
this is something that actually it does come up pretty often in clinic. So what are the exam maneuvers? And uh, I think a little bit of a twist to this case is, do you think this is something you could potentially diagnose over the telephone? Yeah, I think you could. And certainly over a a video audio connection, like a Zoom connection, uh, you could diagnose it. It'd be a little more challenging over the phone, but not undoable Mm -hmm. and really easy with a video audio connection if you're seeing patients that way. Okay, so let's let's pretend that Stuart's the patient, and uh, okay, great. What, what should he do? All right, Stuart, um, so I'm going to have you uh, say something so you're on the screen. I can see you a little bigger than <laughs> I'm your right little... here. Okay, there you go. Now we're yeah. talking. <laughs> so um, what you need to do is you need to stick your hand mm-hmm. straight out in front of you like <laughs> Frankenstein right, right does when he walks, you know, with your palms down like the mummy or like you're sleepwalking in an old cartoon. So you're, yep, you're I got uh, it. you got it? Yeah, that's perfect. Okay, great. So that's the position you want to be in for the, uh, for the first test. And the first test takes advantage of, let's say we're talking about lateral epicondylitis. So you're complaining of pain at the lateral elbow. Uh, this test takes advantage of the fact that uh, the muscles that attach to the lateral epicondyle are the muscles that extend your fingers and your wrist. So I'm going to, um, as your examiner, I'm going to put you back in yeah, the neutral position and I'm okay. going to put my fingers on top of, let's say we're, yeah, is it your right uh, elbow that's bothering you? It's my left. Your left. Okay. <laughs> so take your right hand and put it on top. Yep. Now I would normally be doing what your right hand's doing. And rather than lay it on top of itself, like a pancake, Try to come in from the side, like 90 degrees. Your fingers are, are 90 degrees if, you, if you're flexible enough. Now, uh, sorry, I'm not describing it well. <laughs> um, here, let me, let me show you on me, okay? Yeah, so, show me. So there's my Frankenstein position. I want these fingers like oh, this, okay? Yeah, now we're talking. Great. Okay, so what I want you to do is slide those top fingers toward the tips of the uh, underneath. Yeah, perfect. So I'm going to have you keep your elbow really, really straight. That's super important. Yeah, perfect. And the reason that's so important is the muscles that we're testing, we need to test them on tension. And since they attach above the elbow, when you bend your elbow, it puts slack in them. So we want them pre-tensioned by extending the elbow. And then I'm going to have you keep that hand in the, the, the tested hand in the neutral position parallel to the floor. And now push your fingers toward the ceiling against your other hand. So the top hand is resisting and the bottom hand is pushing up. And what we're doing here is we're recruiting the wrist and finger extensors. And that should light up the pain in your elbow. And it should be at the lateral side there. And is is pain normal if you push too hard? (laughs) Uh, You'd have to push really hard or be really wimpy to have pain with this test if you have a normal elbow. So that shouldn't hurt. Now the other Did we thing just diagnose lateral epicondylitis on Stuart? Or wimpiness. We haven't figured it out yet. <laughs> um, the, uh, but the next test will help us with that. And this is the control. And this is really important to do. And for, the, for this next test, I'm going to have you take that same arm, same position, only turn it palm up. Okay? Great. And now we're going to put our hand out across the fingertips again. And we're going to resist flexing the wrist and fingers toward the ceiling. Okay, now this is going to recruit the muscles on the, vol- on the anterior side of your forearm. These are the flexor muscles. They attach to the medial epicondyle. And uh, if you have lateral epicondylitis, this should be zero pain, zero problem. But the other one that we did first should kill you doing that one. Uh, if it hurts in both directions, then you are definitely a certified wimp. But uh, <laughs> no, it, 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 it does hurt right here, but not, not here. Okay, good. So you have, you've, you have lateral epicondylitis 
is definitely a possibility based on the first test. The second test is a palpation test, and we're going to do that with the elbow bent uh, 90 degrees. Great. And uh, let's see, it's going to be hard. Maybe if you stand up, I could get it into the field of view better. Good. And uh, we're going to, yeah, great. So I can see, I can actually see your lateral epicondyle. You got a beautiful one there. <laughs> it, right there. Yep. You can feel that bony bump right there. Yep. And it should be point tender over, can you find it? It's right there. Yeah. It's, it it, it's, it's more palpable than it is visible, but there's a lump that everybody has there. And if you press on that, it should hurt. And then let's rotate so you can see the medial side of your elbow. Uh, uh, sorry, I'm going to have you go other way. You can actually face me and then just rotate your arm out so I can see the medial side of your elbow. Uh, that's still lateral. There you go. Perfect. Yep, Bend it about 90 degrees. Okay, there you can. And then press on your medial epicondyle. Find that. It's, uh, maybe a little. Yeah, right there. Great. And if you press there, that shouldn't hurt if it's lateral no. epicondylitis. So it's again, it's a control to make sure that it's not just globally painful. So just for summary, the lateral epicondylitis hurts with resisted finger and wrist extension and is tender over the lateral epicondyle. Medial epicondylitis is going to hurt with resisted finger and wrist flexion and hurt over the medial epicondyle. And that's it. That's your physical exam. Those two quick and simple things that we just demonstrated with some difficulty uh, that we can be doing them over a Zoom connection. With a physician uh, receiving the instructions. <laughs> right, exactly. Someone who's had 18 years of clinical training. Yeah. <laughs> but maybe Stuart, maybe Stuart's a, perfect the, patient. a physician who has ADHD uh, trying, to, <laughs> trying to listen to your instructions. Well, all right. So, so what do we do about that? How, okay. how do you treat that in your office? So, so as, as confusing as the pathophysiology is, the treatment is just as confusing. And uh, we have all kinds of treatment. And as soon as you see something that has many, many different forms of treatment, it's a certain clue that we don't know what we're talking about. <laughs> yep. uh, it's very hard to treat. This is like the low back pain of the elbow. <laughs> and the only saving grace that makes it different from low back pain is that in the vast majority of cases, it's not a lifelong permanent thing. If you decide to do nothing about it, likely is it's going to go away in a year or two. I've never seen a patient or had a patient who's had it for more than a couple of years. Uh, and that's a long time, but it's not permanent. And a lot of times when patients hear that, they're kind of fine with that. They just want to make sure they're not destroying their elbow by ignoring it and that uh, it, it will go away someday. So one option for treatment is just to let them know that. And uh, the only purpose for treatment is to try to make it more comfortable while we're waiting it out for it to go away. And sometimes it's months, in rare cases, it's years, but uh, it's, not, it's not permanent in, uh, in almost anybody. Since we've changed the name to Librarian's Elbow, do yes. we have to tell the library, do we have to give them like uh, medical leave uh, so they can yeah. rest it? Or is this, I guess my, my real question, the serious question is, does it get better when people rest it or does it, no matter what they do, they can keep playing tennis and golf and shelving books and it'll get better? I it seems like the the one treatment that has the best chance of making it better is not rest per se. Uh, if we go back to the theory that this is an elasticity problem, uh, rest, especially with the elbow flexed where it's shortened, can actually make it tight in the shortened position. So the next time you shelve a book, it's really going to kill you. So the treatment that seems to work the best of all our crummy treatments that don't work very well is a stretch that stretches in lateral epicondylitis that stretches the common extensor origin. And uh, that stretch is really easy to do. You don't have to send somebody to a physical therapist. Uh, you could, and they have all kinds of other things that can help them too. But really, if you wanted to, to do it uh, 
in the simplest way, you can show a patient a stretch that will help a lot. And that stretch is to get them back into the Frankenstein sleepwalker position. And uh, this time, um, let's see, I've got just, uh, can you say something, Stuart, so I can see you better? You'll be hey, there you go. Perfect. So now what I'm going to have you do is take your other hand and I'm going to have you bend your wrist down. Okay, good. And the more your wrist bends down, the more you'll feel tension on the dorsal aspect of your forearm. And you're actually stretching those wrist and finger extensors by doing that. I just tell people to do this 30 seconds to a minute, 10 times a day. And uh, that stretch, if, we are, if we're successful in restoring some elasticity to the common extensor origin, we can help a lot with the symptoms of lateral epicondylitis. So do you do like heat? Sorry. Sorry, Stuart. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Heat and cold have both been touted with equal success. So, and then there's even even to to make it more confusing or to better demonstrate how little we know what we're doing. Uh, the alternating therapy, uh, this contrast heat ice heat ice, uh, is also recommended. So uh, that I just tell patients experiment with heat, experiment with ice. You can even alternate them, and whichever feels the best, do it. If none of them are working, abandon the whole heat or ice uh, concept. What about topical NSAIDs? Yeah, you know, Any- topical ANSAIDs are, it's amazing to me that the science on them uh, would show that they don't really get that deep into, this, into the tissue and uh, certainly don't reach serum levels anywhere near what you would get with oral anti-inflammatory medications. Uh, so usually I poo-poo them, but it's amazing to me that even some of my grum- grumpiest cynical patients do seem to get relief from them. Uh, <laughs> they, they seem safe. Uh, if you're going to pick a structure to use them on, The lateral epicondylitis and medial epicondylitis are probably the best because the thing we're targeting is the closest to the skin of anything I work on. I can't think of another condition where I want medicine to get so close to the the surface of the skin. The lateral epicondyle, it's so palpable because it's right beneath a thin layer of skin. So maybe uh, that little bit of penetration that you get with topicals actually makes sense for the uh, medial and lateral epicondylitis. And, you know, some people have said that the act of massaging the stuff in may be what's making it help. Because again, we're trying to restore elasticity and the therapists often will massage tendons to make them more elastic and flexible. What about the counterforce brace? Yeah. They, uh, are you talking about the strap brace? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So there's a brace that looks like a bracelet, only instead of wearing it around your wrist, you wear it two-thirds of the way up your elbow, uh, or up your forearm, rather, just distal to the elbow. And that's a brace that uh, isn't really that helpful for getting rid of the problem. It does help you while you wear it. The stretches help you even after you're done stretching, but the brace uh, helps you while you're wearing the brace. But once you take it off, it doesn't really make much of a difference. It works the way a capo on a guitar works. And, and I don't know if you're familiar with that, but basically it's a little clamp that guitarists use on the neck. So the vibration of a plucked string doesn't make it all the way up to the head of the guitar. So when you put this on your forearm, vibrations and, uh, and tensions that you develop in your wrist and hand don't actually tug as hard on the origin up at the elbow. Some of that's muted or dampened by the, uh, the uh, circumferential uh, ring brace around the forearm. Yeah, I've seen this. I've seen uh, patients have some relief with that and, and topical NSAIDs. Um, what about injections? How do you feel about that? I know injections yeah, a, in general are... Yeah, they're getting a black eye these days. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, and I think that's that's probably uh, warranted it, it, to some extent. Um, you know, when, when I was training so long ago, uh, we were taught that the injections were totally safe and had no systemic effects. And then we saw <laughs> the diabetic sugars go up and we're like, okay, there's a little systemic effect. 
but uh, we just need to space them out and then there's no local effect. And, and then we realize that maybe even a single shot has a local effect. I think it just goes back to everything we all know, which is every tool in our toolbox, every medicine, every therapy, every surgery for sure uh, has a downside or, or a, a negative effect. Uh, and the, the question is, does the positive effect of a cortisone shot for lateral epicondylitis outweigh any of those negative effects. And uh, there have been papers written, or there's one paper written anyway, that got a lot of attention that said that patients who received a cortisone shot for lateral epicondylitis uh, tended to have worse outcomes over time than those that didn't. Uh, I do use lateral epicondyle injections if the stretches fail, and they really do give short-term relief. Uh, and I haven't seen a lot of, uh, of patients who develop long-term uh, you know, higher incidence of need for surgery, but that's that's something that's debated. So I do use cortisone injections. Uh, one of the things that I've learned and has definitely been the experience of other orthopedists is that injections for these epicondyle conditions uh, have a high incidence of post-injection complications. None of them particularly horrible, but uh, bad pain afterwards, the post-injection flare that you hear about in getting in, you can get it with any cortisone injection. I think it's way more common with uh, medial lateral epicondylitis mm-hmm. and skin changes, maybe because there's just skin and not much other tissue to absorb the medicine, but the cortisone can cause lipoatrophy, which will make the elbow look bizarre. The uh, medial or lateral epicondyle will be a lot more prominent when the fat around it uh, atrophies. And you can get uh, blanching of the skin and the small veins and capillaries in the skin get way more prominent and can actually start bleeding when you bump your elbow. All of these things are temporary, uh, but they take months to resolve, and uh, but they will resolve. So if if Carla, our patient here, was like Stuart and she had lateral epicondylitis, what might the first visit instructions uh, sound like when you tell her what to do? And when would you have her back before you even consider giving an injection? Yeah, so I would definitely demonstrate for her those stretches in person or if we were able to communicate them the way uh, Stuart and I did over a Zoom connection. I would have her do those and I'd have her, you know, 30 seconds to a minute, 10 times a day. Uh, the more, the better, but that would be a bare minimum amount to do them. And then I'd put the ball in her court and really say, you know, realize that this is not a permanent condition. Realize that it's not likely doing any permanent damage when when it's in there and you have it. Uh, but if you're too uncomfortable and that solution doesn't work, then come back and see me. I would definitely give the stretches three or four weeks uh, before saying they didn't work. But if three or four weeks passes and you're not happy with what you got from stretching, then we can talk about a cortisone injection or there's also a surgical solution, which is equally mediocre, uh, probably has about a 65% success rate uh, for uh, helping uh, lateral epicondylitis. But it sounds like at least there's a lot to, to give them. We can give them, they could do ice or heat, they could yep. try the the counter force brace. They could try topical NSAIDs as well. So a lot of potential things, but probably stretching. It sounds like is the big the big thing that yeah. might potentially and reverse it. As close to evidence based as we're going to get in these treatments. Uh, the other thing that I'll mention is a Velcro wrist brace uh, because the problem is often at the wrist and hand. Uh, for instance, if you're using a keyboard and the ergonomics aren't great and your wrist is kind of cocked up all day, that's pulling tension on your lateral epicondyle. And a wrist brace to sort of put those muscles at rest and not have them constantly pulling on the on the common extensor origin has worked in a lot of patients too. So it's a, it holds the wrist in neutral, you're saying? Like, yeah, exactly. Okay. Yep. Yep. So you don't have to kind of actively hold it up with those extensors. Okay. 
Well, Stuart, why don't we why don't we move on to the next case? Yeah, no bones about it. <laughs> so uh, Jorge, he's a 62 year old man. He's presenting with a complaint of a big lump. It just appeared acutely over his elbow. So. Uh, I mean, this sounds like we're going to be talking about olecranon bursitis. So when a patient comes complaining of posterior elbow swelling, what what else should we be thinking of at this point? Yeah, I think that, again, we start by ruling out trauma, which is easy to rule out based on history, and then infection. And uh, the thing that you, you don't want to miss is an infected elbow joint. And an infected elbow joint is warm and red and swollen and in some ways can look a lot like the patient you're describing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I get consulted on this a lot. It never fails. It's some, I've got something really important I want to do in the office or in the <laughs> operating room. And I get a call from a harried uh, house staff that they've got an infected elbow and they know that infected joints are emergencies. And we've got to hustle this guy to the operating room. And uh, it turns out it's olecranon bursitis or maybe even just a cellulitis. Uh, and the, the, the one test that you can use that's very reliable to distinguish an infected elbow joint from an infected olecranon bursa is a motion test. Um, and the flexion extension motion hurts a lot in both cases uh, because just as my shirt gets tight when I flex my hand up to touch my shoulder, uh, the olecranon, the skin over the olecranon bursa gets tight. So if you have an olecranon bursitis or an infected olecranon bursa, it hurts a lot to flex your elbow to the extreme like that. And uh, motion of straightening and bending, that hurts olecranon bursitis. It will also hurt a septic elbow. So that test, uh, that motion test isn't helpful. But the helpful test is with the elbow at your side, elbow flex 90 degrees, supinate and pronate your hand and forearm. So palm up, palm down, just moving the hand and forearm. That's equally as much an elbow joint motion test. It's taking the capsule of the elbow and wringing it out like a wash rag. And if it's plumped up with pus, that will be super uh, painful for the patient. But it does nothing to move the skin around the olecranon bursus. So if you've got a red hot infected olecranon bursitis, that flex or that supination pronation motion with your elbow at your side isn't painful for that patient, but it's very painful for the patient with a septic joint. So uh, so motion tests help sort that out, but not the flexion extension motion test. It's the supination pronation motion test. Hmm. And what exactly is the bursa? Is it kind of like uh, the appendix? We don't need it. No, we need it. We got to oh. have it. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's a really uh, ingenious little machine. Basically, there are a couple points. The elbow is probably the most famous. The, the skin over the kneecap is another one. But there are places in your body where there's just skin and bone, and the skin has to move with a big excursion over the bone. So you really have to have a bearing in there. And nature's bearing is this bursa. And what it is is sort of a, a golf ball-sized bag that's uh, made of a, a synovial lining. And just like a plastic bag that's been deflated with a couple drops of loop motor oil in it, the surfaces of the bag slide on each other and allow the tissue to, to glide back and forth. So that's how it works efficiently as a bearing. It doesn't work efficiently if it's not a collapsed sac. And in olecranon bursitis, the sac is plumped up with fluid. And the fluid can be either blood and if you think about the point of your elbow, it, it's so unprotected. If you smack your elbow on something hard, it's not hard to imagine how you could bleed inside the bursa. And uh, you get a bursa full of blood and you've got uh, what this patient's describing. You could have a bursa full of infection and that will be a patient with a big uh, blob on the point of their elbow. Or it can just be inflammatory fluid. Uh, and uh, a lot of the inflammatory fluid comes after 
the bleeding and uh, the hemorrhagic bursitis sort of organizes in the bursa. And if you get a little pellet of scar tissue in that bursa, as you move your elbow, the the pellet of scar tissue rubs the surface of the bursa, which stimulates the bursa to make uh, an inflammatory fluid. So a lot of the hemorrhagic bursitis, if it if it matures, can be an uh, inflammatory bursitis. And isn't gout also a consideration? Absolutely, or, or infec- yeah. infected yeah. Burs- uh, bursa, yeah. another another thing yeah. too. I f- I find that can be a little bit confusing clinically to to try to sort out what you're looking at. Yeah, gout. And infection can both be red hot, super painful, and and look identical. Uh, and really, the only way to sort it out would be to aspirate the bursa to make the diagnosis. And uh, one of the things that I've learned the hard way is in aspirating these olecranon bursae is it's tempting just to put the needle in right at the point of the elbow uh, where you're a millimeter of skin away from getting what yeah. you want. Uh, and that's you'll definitely get the sample you want but they'll drip for days and sometimes they can create a an unhealing sort of tract because the thing the pump that's making that fluid hasn't turned off and uh we aspirate these usually with a pretty big gauge needle because the the fluid with gout and infection uh, pus can be too thick to draw up with like a 25 or 22 gauge needle so we're using a big needle we make a big hole there's a pump in there pumping fluid in there it's not hard to get a chronic draining sinus uh, if you put the needle right on the point of the elbow where you want to. So the way to avoid that is to pick a tract either superior above it, like in the triceps. And I'm talking about not a super, like two centimeters of passing the needle through uh, skin that's not involved and then entering the bursa. And when you pull that needle out, that tract is long enough that the skin will collapse and there's enough resistance that it's unlikely to drain. Uh, so if, you, if you're going to do this uh, aspiration technique, it's good to pass the needle a centimeter or two in a in tunneled normal skin and then enter the bursa. It's best not to do it on the medial side because the ulnar nerve is there. Uh, probably a superior or, uh, or distal approach would be best. Does now that make we, sense? Yeah. That does make sense, yeah. Are we aspirating just to to rule out that those two diagnoses, yeah, I don't infection think versus it's, gout? Or? It's unlikely that you're going to solve the problem by aspirating it. Not impossible. Uh, and uh, especially if it's hemorrhage, uh, aspirating it can help and can actually reverse the process. But uh, if it's infection, you'll be able to make the diagnosis. It'd be very hard to sterilize the bursa by just sucking the, the pus out one time. Uh, so it's sort of an abscess cavity that's prone to reaccumulate and hard to treat, even with antibiotics, uh, it's hard to penetrate inside that that potential space with enough medicine to get rid of the infection. So in those cases, uh, the infected cases for sure, uh, the sur- the surgery treatment is probably the best, and that's to open the skin and completely remove the bursa. Which uh, after we talked about how important they are, you would think would be a tragedy. But the cool thing about bursas is after you close the skin, about six weeks later, the person will grow a brand new, squeaky clean, normal bursa to take the place of the old one. We even see it when we put hardware in. If we create a prominence from a screw head or a plate, the patient's body will make a bursa over that. So it must be sort of like blisters. Your body can just pop them up where they need to be if there's friction. That's amazing. It's really amazing. Yeah. It's really, it's, 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 it's awesome. That is the orthopedic liver. That is blo- yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> That's blowing my mind. Yes, it's it sounds well, like what's, what's interesting. I'm I'm go ahead. Keep talking, okay. Stuart. Go ahead. No, I, I was gonna say it's it's interesting because when I look up the the technique and the for the for a bursa drainage, every single picture shows them going directly into yeah. the bursa sac. Yeah, yeah. It's 
That's yeah, why. No, that's why uh, Ted, Doctor Parks, is an expert, and uh, that's why we're talking to him. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I know. I just and, find that interesting. Unfortunately, a lot of those patients that were in that picture come to our office later with like some dried <laughs> Kleenex stuck to their elbow, oh, no. and, like Sinus forty band aids, and they're like, "This is just won't quit leaking. It's been doing it for three weeks. Do I need to worry about this?" <laughs> oh. Yeah. oh dear. I guess you got to take the bursa out and then just let them grow a new one or something. Uh, well, yeah. The, that definitely will fix the problem. And, and, and in infected cases for sure, or mechanical cases where there's some scar tissue in the bursa that's rubbing its lining, that's just very hard to get rid of short of taking the bursa out. Well, where I've seen this, it, it, so, well, to summarize what we talked about so far, if it sounds, if we're thinking gout or if we're thinking infection, then we, we have to aspirate just to, because that's really the only way to differentiate. But if it's, if the person says, "Oh yeah, I was I was putting in a hardwood floor, so I was down on my hands and knees, and my you know they have the bursa." I've actually seen a, a patient with both elbows, like golf ball size, from being on hands and knees doing. And uh, for those patients, what do you tell them about like the expected course and and what's the therapy like for that? Yeah, and that may be one where you could aspirate and have. A, I usually tell them when I aspirate, I have a fifty fifty chance of getting rid of this. And that's not really evidence-based. It just gives me good leeway either way, depending on how it goes. Uh, and if it comes back, they have the option, of, you know, if we, if we drew the fluid out and it looked like blood or we, let's say we sent it and it's not infected, if it returns, uh, unless they, their symptoms change, we know, okay, this isn't an infected one. You have the option of putting up with it. If you go to the third world, you'll see lots of people with these Lecronon bursae that they just live with. And unless they get infected, they're, they're not uh, an urgency. They're an inconvenience that most of the people here wouldn't put up with, but they're not an urgency unless they can become infected. So will they get better if you, if you rest, uh, rest the area and put some ice on it, uh, do, do, yeah, do topical say, NSAIDs work for these? or I, I haven't seen any success with topical NSAIDs. Time and, and ice probably make the most sense. And, and I've seen people who are convalescing from back surgery, for instance, and to roll out of bed, they're, they're, you, know, you can imagine getting your elbows sort of pushing on the mattress to roll yourself and uh, you get an incl- inflamed olecranon bursa that way or maybe even a hemorrhagic one. And that has a better prognosis for potentially going away on its own. But if it's been there for weeks and weeks, it probably isn't going to get better on its own. So you probably need to send him, send him to somebody who can aspirate it and, and that'll, that'll take care of it. Yeah. Or if it doesn't, you can, I always give them the option of aspirating it. And if it doesn't and it comes back, then we can remove it surgically. Mm. And if it is, if you are worried that it's septic and you've done your easy exam and you're convinced it's not in the joint, is, is that something that they need to see ortho like in a couple days or you can just treat as an internist or... Yeah, I think if it's an infected olecranon bursitis and it's not an infected joint, it's definitely a lower level of acuity than a joint infection, but it's urgent in that it's sort of like an abscess. So especially if your patient has risk factors like diabetes, for instance, uh, they could become systemically ill if it isn't treated. So I'd probably say, you know, sometime within a couple of days to a week, you should see an orthopedist. Yeah. Let's start them on oral antibiotics. Yeah, it wouldn't hurt if you've already aspirated. You've got your cultures, so you could start them. If, if nothing else, it could keep them from getting a systemic illness by having that in their bloodstream. Mm-hmm. Yes, that w- I'm just thinking, Molly, that would make me uncomfortable. I'd probably want to talk yes. to, <laughs> within within a couple hours, speak with an orthopedic <laughs> and and just develop a plan, uh, let them know what we're seeing. And certainly if they had systemic symptoms, you'd probably be admitting them for, for intravenous. But yeah, that would that sounds like that would be a tricky situation. 
Molly, anything else be with this case or just to make sure we have enough time to do, to yeah. to give to the third one? Should we move on? I think that's good unless, Ted, you thought there was anything else important. No, I, I think that covers it. Okay. Um, so our next one, uh, we have Maria. She's a 68-year-old woman who slipped and fell on an outstretched arm. And she was initially able to move her arm okay, but over 20 to 30 minutes, her elbow became very tender and swollen. And so she went to her local urgent care where an x-ray showed a radial head fracture minimally displaced. Um, so which patients typically get this radial head fracture and how does yeah, that happen? This, uh, it's, if you fall with your arm stretched out, uh, you'll usually either break your distal radius at the wrist or the radial head or neck at the elbow. So it's really the mechanism, I think, that uh, puts patients at risk for this. And this is now the, the different bucket of patients. This is trauma. So in an outpatient office, this is by far and away the trauma to the elbow condition you'll see more than any other, uh, these radial head fractures. Uh, bad elbow fracture dislocations aren't going to walk in uh, you know, as an outpatient to your clinic. But somebody who fell thought it'd get better by the next day. It got worse. It's hurting more. It's swollen. It's more stiff. We see that all the time coming into our outpatient clinic, and I'm sure you guys will too. And uh, and they, these are usually these radial head and radial neck fractures. Yeah, I can't say that this is one that I, maybe I've missed the diagnosis. I can't, I can't say that I've seen it much, or maybe it's just being handled a lot by orthopedics. But it sounds like this, without a history of trauma, we, we wouldn't really expect this diagnosis. Correct. Okay. Got to have trauma for this. Yep. And it's almost always falling on the outstretched hand, uh, the, the trauma specifically. Well, we haven't talked about this... imaging much. Um, yeah. Oh, go ahead, Molly. I was going to say, does this, is this a typical sort of osteoporotic fracture? I mean, I know the wrist is more likely. Yeah, but... the wrist is, I, it may be, and I don't know that. Uh, I know the wrist is for sure. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's, it's much less likely to be an osteoporotic fracture than the distal radius. So with the other conditions we talked about so far, we, we haven't imaged the elbow at all. It, with Correct. this one, with the with trauma, if we're worried about this, is there any way you diagnose it without a history of trauma and without an x-ray? Well, there is a way to diagnose it uh, by palpation. And uh, we talked about palpating the olecranon process. That's easy to find and palpate. And in a patient with this fracture, that will be non-tender. The medial epicondyle would be non-tender. That's miles away from the radial head. The radial head lives right across the street from the lateral epicondyle. So if you found the lateral epicondyle earlier while we were talking, just move a centimeter distal and there's a bump there that, mm -hmm. and you can differentiate them by supinating and pronating your forearm and you'll feel that bump rotating and moving around under your finger, yeah. whereas the lateral epicondyle stays, stays put. So now you've just found the radial head and these will be really tender if you palpate there and have them supinate and pronate. So that's a way to pick them up uh, without imaging. Um, so finding them can be done without imaging, but sort of understanding how serious they are, you need an x-ray because there are fractures of the radial head that require surgery. If the piece that's broken is big enough or displaced far enough, it's better for patients to have them fixed. Uh, most of them don't need that, but there are some that do. And the only way you're going to figure that out would be with an x-ray. I will also say we're, you're talking about palpating the radial head and, uh, as someone who has a couple kids, uh, who yeah, are, you right. know, yes. there's this thing right. called nursemaid's elbow. Uh, know it well, you, yes. If you if you pull your kids up by the arms, like off the floor, and they have uh, they have the right makeup, I guess that that radial head can slip out of place, and the kid just kind of like leaves the arm <laughs> hang, like they don't want to move their wrist a bunch. That's right. And then you yes. just like 
put pressure on it and pronate yeah, and it just pops back in. That's right. And you look like a miracle worker. I've done it once to my kid, but the first time it happened, I was too afraid to do it. And I took him to, uh-huh. I took him to an urgent oh. care and the doctor's like, oh yeah, let me see that. Pops it back in. It was like five seconds. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's a neat uh, party trick. It is. <laughs> He's like Mel Gibson in Lethal Weapon uh, yeah, in, right. his, in his kindergarten class. <laughs> Uh, yeah, exactly. So the other thing, since we're talking about imaging, um, there's this thing that you'll hear about and read about called the sale sign. And uh, sometimes the fractures are so hairline that you can't see them on x-ray. And your only clue that this happened is this thing called the sale sign. And the sale sign is a shadow that you'll see on a lateral x-ray of the elbow. And it looks like a triangle with a thin part that's very pointy going superiorly up the humerus and a wider part down at the bottom. And all it is, is it's blood from the broken radial head or radial neck that has bled into the capsule of the joint. So Mm -hmm. it's contained in the capsule and it's pushing the muscles like the triceps posteriorly off of the humerus uh, and creating this shadow where you're usually not seeing a shadow. So it's shaped the shape of a, of a tall uh, triangle, tall, thin triangle, and it's blood separating the soft tissue away from the bone that you see on x-ray. So if you see that sign, you, you have a radial head or neck fracture, even if the fracture is too mm. small to see on the x-ray. I've heard of the sale sign. I just did not remember it was related to this. Yeah, that's what it is. So this uh, maybe there are other sales signs, but for uh, elbow injuries, that's what they're talking about. Uh, and I suppose any intraarticular fracture could cause a sale sign, but if the X-ray is normal and you see one, it's it's almost certainly the radial head or radial neck. And it actually kind of is segues into why treatment of this fracture is so bizarre. Uh, it's not treated with a cast. It's not treated typically with surgery. Uh, it's treated with motion. And there really aren't any other fractures I can come up with right off the top of my head where they're treated this way. Uh, most of the time, the patient's put in a splint for maybe a week or 10 days just for comfort. But we want them to move as soon as they can, because all that blood that's in the joint creating the sale sign on x-ray will harden into scar tissue. And the biggest complication after this fracture isn't the fracture slipping or not healing or maluniting. It's the elbow getting very, very stiff from hardened blood inside the joint. So if you don't move the elbow, that will happen and you'll get this sort of adhesive capsulitis of the elbow. Uh, So we want patients to move as soon as they can. Casting them will promote that stiffness. Uh, And it's a much bigger problem than the chance of the radial head or neck fracture displacing or or coming out of place. Makes sense. Yeah, it's interesting because there aren't many fractures that we treat that way. Are there any specific exercises that they have to do or just keeping it mobile? Yeah, it's more motion than strength stuff. So really just I tell people to uh, you know straighten and bend the elbow through the range of uh-huh. comfort. They shouldn't be biting their lip and pushing it out straight, but you know, <laughs> trying to okay. really force it out there. But uh, just you know, the main thing is just educating them that this isn't a bad or dangerous thing. It's actually less dangerous than keeping it still uh, and spending a couple minutes letting them know that so it's safe to move it. And just walking with your arm kind of dangling by your side and, and flexing a little bit as you walk is good. Supination and pronation, you can yes. have them uh, uh, put their hand just on the, you know, rested on the counter with a hammer in their hand and just tilt the wrist back and forth so that the head of the hammer kind of helps them supinate and pronate in different directions. Okay. And yeah, I was going to ask about that. Yeah, supination and pronation will be more uncomfortable up front than flexion extension. So usually people will have them do flexion extension for the first couple of weeks. And, and then as they're able to tolerate it, introduce supination pronation. 
So m- most of these patients I, I send to physical therapy, how, how quickly should we be sending them to physical therapy? Is it okay to wait a week and a half or two weeks? Or Yeah, most people won't be able to do it right off the bat because it's just too uncomfortable. So the, the textbook answer would be one to two weeks of immobilization just for comfort, but stressing to them that as soon as they can, they need to start moving it. Okay. Molly, anything else you wanted to ask about this uh, before we start to wrap up? Um, I don't think so. I mean, I guess what kind of what came to my mind, is, Stuart, sounds like you're seeing these. I actually haven't seen any of these cases. Are you treating them yourself or you send them to an orthopedist? So most of the time I treat them myself, um, send them to physical therapy. I'll send a note to the orthopedist to let them know that I'm seeing this patient and that if they don't have any improvement, um, generally in about three to four weeks, or if they have any ad- adhesive capsulitis, that's when I send them to the orthopedic doctor. Yeah, but I think they, that makes good sense. Yeah. yeah. They, they follow kind of peripherally. But yeah. keep in mind that my patient population, I do see a lot of young, um, fairly active individuals that get injured. So, Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think the ones I'm seeing are mostly coming from urgent care and ER, but plenty come from the primary care as well. And they're sort of diagnosed as elbow sprains. And realistically, I think that's a reasonable thing to call it, really. It's behaving yeah. in more like a sprain, and it's treated more like a sprain than a fracture. So technically it's a fracture, but it probably belongs in the sprain bucket as far as uh, a patient's uh, con- concept of what they have. So I, I did, I, I think it would be too much to, to ask about this, but uh, Ted, it, we probably won't include this in the recording, uh, or maybe we will. I do see a fair amount of people complaining of nerve entrapment symptoms from the cubital tunnel. And yeah. do you have any quick guidance that you give to patients when they talk about that. You know, I, I, I wake up and my, the, the fifth and fourth digit are, are numb on like the owner side of their hand and they, or they might have some pain in the medial side of their elbow. What do you, you do anything for that? Yeah, it is common. And uh, I think that you can treat it a lot of times conservatively. A lot of times I'll have patients just buy a, uh, like a volleyball player's elbow pad and slide it on. And it isn't so much that the pad is helping them, but by wearing the pad, they won't flex their elbow as much. And flexion really puts that nerve on tension as it goes around the corner there. Uh, and just having that pad on at night, this is a kind of, it's a, like carpal tunnel. It can be a, a very nighttime problem because you assume yeah. a position that puts the nerve on, on tension. And just putting that, sliding that pad on, I'll even sometimes have them rotate it so the padded part, which normally would go over the olecranon process, is in the cubital fossa, which helps protect them from flexing it. And just by keeping it a little more straight like that, uh, they can get rid of symptoms. Uh, but, you know, it's one of those things where if you start to see ulnar muscle wasting or weakness, then uh, we have an operation for it where we transpose the ulnar nerve out of the groove and put it uh, more anteriorly. So instead of taking a right angle around the corner, it cuts across the lawn and goes, uh, uh-huh. takes the shortcut across the elbow. And uh, that, that's, it's, it's effective, but uh, not, as a, not as effective as a carpal tunnel operation because the distance between the event and the end organ, the fingers, is so long, there's Wallerian degeneration, and the success isn't as good when the cure is that distal from the problem. Right. So when you're saying like once they've had the degeneration, it's, it may be too late by the time you get, get the surgery done? Yeah, and you can halt progression, but you may not reverse uh, what they've had. And so it's important for them to know that if they're signing up for, for an operation. Thank you. Molly, uh, you think we're ready to wrap up? I think so, Did yeah. you guys want to do any PRP? Uh, 
Maybe we can spend a minute on it. Yeah. I mean, I, I have so many patients ask about it. And when I was yes. reading about treatment for lateral and medial epicondylitis, yes. it was put out there. And I, I know there's not a ton of data behind it, but just curious your thoughts. Yeah, I think it's bogus. Um, <laughs> but uh, that's, that's a good answer. in a word, um, you know, it, 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 it kind of makes sense. If you look at, uh, at platelets, I think I learned in third grade that their job was to stick together and make a scab when you cut yourself. Definitely true. But another thing that's more elegant is that when they do link together, they jettison these little uh, vacuoles of all kinds of chemicals that we're just starting to understand and, and, and learn about, uh, healing factors and tissue growth factors and all this basic fairy dust that helps healing. And uh, if you were to design the system, it's a great like first responder to be there to jettison these chemicals because they're the, the little cellular elements that, that are there at trauma every time. Uh, so it makes sense that they would have these powerful chemicals that help healing. And the concept with PRP would be, what if we took those fairy dust particles, some of which we really understand and have even sequenced, but many, many of which exist and we haven't even started to learn them yet. <laughs> but if we just took the, that those packets of, of, of uh, chemicals and sprinkled them on fill in the blank, lateral epicondylitis, or, uh, you know, they're being used so widely for so many things. And uh, in epicondylitis, we were talking about how kind of unsuccessful our current treatment is. So it's a great place to try something like that. And it's easy to do. You can take their blood in the office, put it in a centrifuge and isolate the platelets. That's easy to do. So now you've got your platelet rich plasma. It's autologous. You don't have to worry about, uh, you know, giving it to somebody when it's coming from someone else. And you just put it in a syringe and pepper it around the lateral epicondyle. And uh, unfortunately, none of the well-designed studies have shown that it actually does anything to... uh, to speed up healing. It, it may be that it has an effect, but we haven't been able to convincingly demonstrate that in a well-designed study. For meniscus tears or all kinds of, it's being used all over the place. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's the, the thought behind it. But in reality, there must be some missing element that, that is keeping these particles from doing their miraculous healing miracle. I think it's got great marketing behind it. Uh, branding, it does, yes. Uh, PRP, it sounds cool. Yeah. And the athletes do it. They fly to like Munich to get it done. And that just makes it sound so damn sexy. I want it myself right now. <laughs> I've seen someone try it for balding, which I thought was a yeah, stretch yeah. on the Erectile dysfunction. You just Anything. pick it, you know. You yeah. Just, yeah. Just, just put it everywhere. <laughs> just, uh, well, I think this is a great place to end the discussion. <laughs> This is a lot of fun. Ted, did you want to give us a couple take-home points, maybe maybe one for each of the conditions we talked about? Yeah, I think uh, lateral epicondylitis and medial epicondylitis, the take-home point there is that it's not a permanent condition. Treatment isn't that great, but it can help you be comfortable while you're waiting it out. Uh, Electronon bursitis take-home point is be able to differentiate it from a septic joint and realize that... Uh, if you take the bursa out, you'll get a, a, a new replacement uh, from the factory, no charge. Uh, and then uh, the radial head fractures, even though they have the word fracture, uh, think of them more like sprains and uh, realize that uh, immobilizing them is more dangerous than moving them. Did you want to plug anything? Maybe a book? Yeah, you like know, that. I just can't put this book down. This uh, Practical <laughs> Office Orthopedics uh, by McGraw-Hill. I can't remember the author's name, but dang, that thing is good. It's chock full of great illustrations, and uh, it's, uh, I, I think it's a great book. And it, it has a chapter that's pretty much word for word what I said here. I, I, I kind of have these spiels that I give to patients. And they've become, I just hit the play button, and, and it's, it's basically uh, a lot of that in there. 
Yeah, and there's only 15 left on Amazon, so get your copy now. Oh, man. Great. Well, there were 16 a month ago, so. <laughs> <laughs> I will say we've used the book for multiple shows at this point, and it, it is very easy uh, the way that you break things down to understand and uh, definitely would be something worth your worth your while to have on hand. Um, especially the way you explain things to to us uh, is also works to explain things to patients. So I, I can't recommend it highly enough to the audience. Oh, thanks, Matt. I appreciate it. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Still yummy. Get show notes at thecurbsiders.com slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. That's right, because we're committed to providing you with high-value practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to the one and only Molly Hoibline and infographic creator Edison Yang for this episode. And to our social media team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Twitter, Maddie Mad Dog Morgan on Instagram, and Chris the Chu Man Chu on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Stuart Kent Brigham. And I've been Molly Hoybein. And uh, since Paul's not here, I will go last. I will thank Stuart for writing our theme music, which is most surely playing right now, and Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio. Thanks to my wonderful wife for letting me have a podcast. And until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto, and good night. Good night. And thanks to our partner, VCU Health Continuing Education, who's helping us offer free CE credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals. Check out curbsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information.